Hello, and welcome back to Dollars and Dragons. Today, I have with me James D'Amato. If you'd like to introduce yourself to our audience. Hello, heroes. Uh, I am James D'Amato. You might recognize my voice from the One Shot podcast or the Campaign Skyjacks podcast. I am the president of the One Shot Podcast Network. I'm also the author of the Ultimate RPG series published by Adams Media, which is an imprint of Simon & Schuster. You know, we actually have to talk about that as well. Let's talk about your books. I completely just based on that. We're going to talk about your books as well. Um, Alrighty. Have you uh, had an opportunity to talk about your newest one, your latest one? Um, not on a podcast yet. No, I don't okay, think so. Okay, okay, okay. And also, we do got to cover your uh, your OnlyFans too, because I saw that in your link tree. It doesn't lead anywhere. It's a joke. Okay, so <laughs> it's uh, funny jokes, but it, and it's mostly because uh, when everybody was doing their link trees, uh, when we all, well, I mean, what we're still waiting for Twitter to implode, but when yeah. the panic was higher, I looked at everybody's link trees to be like, okay, what, what what's everybody linking? What should, what am I forgetting? What am I leaving out? And so many people had an OnlyFans, and I'm like, well, now I'm left out. I don't have that. I don't have that. You know what, James? There's definitely an audience there out there. I'm just letting you know. I do you think know, it's fine. I am inches away at any time from setting up an erotic RPG <laughs> podcast. The The real question is whether uh, the other things that I need to do in the industry, like whether it would make that more difficult. Um, right. But if there's enough money there, you know, I got to support a family. James, did you know that I run erotic sessions as a oh, game no, master? That's cool. <laughs> like, like I said, I think there is a market for it, uh, for sure. It's oh, just there a is. question of whether or not um, it is compatible with all of the other responsibilities that I have um, in, in the RPG space and world. And also, like, as somebody who has, like, tried to design uh, content, you know, surrounding erotic themes in RPGs and whatnot... Uh, whether you are doing things responsibly or not, there is the crowd of people, the same crowd of people that like really wants the haze code to come back will start saying just truly awful things about you and your work. And it's a question of whether or not uh, the rewards, uh, both monetarily and artistically, for engaging in that are worth the stress and hit to your other income streams. So, yeah. you know, it's one thing I'm I'm always like, ah, this would be so cool. It would be very fun. There would be people, but a headache, a big headache, which is most creative endeavors. Uh, it's a big headache that you accept alongside all of the other cool rewards that come with it. Yeah, there's a lot of, I would say, stigma associated with it. But the reason and I guess the way that I got started on it, I don't think I've actually talked about this on my podcast yet. Maybe I have. I talk about it like in conversation semi-regularly. I don't talk about clients, but I do talk about like me doing it now, uh, doing it. Um, <laughs> the uh, the play-by-post and the uh, voice sessions that I run, I started because I had a bunch of people, bunch of people. I had a good amount of people where it was like maybe... 10 to 20 people regularly like just kind of like joking about it and like haha hee wouldn't it be funny if you know our NPCs you know wouldn't it you know sure sure and then I was like eventually after like six months of that I was just like okay well put your fucking money where your mouth is and I started posting like links to like sign up for these games and I was like you know what you need to you need to follow through with this um I didn't say that to them but I was like you know what if you would <laughs> a like 
great <laughs> advertising technique. That's, that's the old super liminal advertising. You need to do this now. It exists, therefore you must. I, but I guess my, a curiosity that I have a, about that, are you, is there a particular system that, that you are using for those? Most of the time, there's no system involved at all. It is a role-playing environment in which it's more akin to, for the text role-play, it's more akin to play-by-post on like a message board, if you remember those. Sure. I know you and I are yeah, from the yeah, generation. Yeah, like the old live journal days and yeah. whatnot, for sure. Yeah, I uh, and for the voice sessions, generally people just request kind of what they would like, and then I sort of build that character and like that scene or whatever. Um I've had everything from like dates to uh, BDSM situations to uh, just sexual encounters or just romantic encounters just in general. So it's not always just sex. I think most of my clients actually are not interested in the sex. They're interested in everything around the sex. And the sex is just a very small component of it. But it's a safe space to sort of explore that Um there's definitely a market for it, at least for, for me. I don't know how that works out for other people. It really depends on how you brand yourself. But I have a very sex-positive community, and I think making people feel comfortable enough to even approach you is like, that's a whole thing in of itself. Before you even sure. begin to start advertising, you have to be brand safe enough to be able to do that. Otherwise, you just get random requests. And I'm not really in the business of random requests. Everyone that I currently... Uh, do these sessions with i played in a game with uh and i like playing with you know so there's still that trust that has been built in other places before we go yeah. and we do these sessions um advertising there's, to randoms, there's got to be mutual trust between the client and, and the performer in that scenario especially because rpgs like the, the, i think these everything that you've hinted at around this like speaks to something that is very powerful about rpgs which is the intimacy that is inherent to the format um and I would say that, yeah, it makes total sense to me that people are like not just interested in the sex, but interested in the idea of romance and intimate connection and exploring that through different characters and forms, because that's something that RPGs can do. And whether you are a, you know, person who is looking for somebody to, you know, perform in this way or you, you're a performer, there's got to be some trust in there because both people are being pretty vulnerable with each other. So that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I think a large part of it as well is like for me, I was at a point well where I needed to maximize my time for the amount of time I spent prepping and running games and not kill myself essentially because I'm running 12, 13 games right now, not including my erotic games. So is I was a, thinking on like, a weekly rotation for you or is that yeah. wow. Oof. Yeah. Tuesday to Sunday I run about twelve games. Um sometimes it's down as low as like ten if I have a couple cancellations. But uh yeah, I, it, it depends on if I run one shots and stuff like that. I would say at least ten regular campaigns and then I'm starting up a couple to be regular. In the meantime I've got one shots going and like sort of rotating through that because sometimes tape Tables die down and like you have to replace them and find yeah. a new, you know, um, new campaign to run, um, which you wouldn't understand because you have the longest running campaign in all of tabletop. <laughs> well, that's, I think, explicitly not true. Uh <laughs> 
it's it seems like it but um yeah i think uh one of the other things about it uh that i'll mention we'll, we'll get to non-sexy conversation one of the things that i found that was interesting about it was when i received my first uh kink list from somebody and that to me like was like oh, okay this person wants that from me and that was very empowering for me but at the same time kind of scary in a way it was like what they want from me <laughs> and i was like okay <laughs> Hmm, I have to sit with this. Um, so a whole new experience, but altogether, I would say generally positive. Yeah, not 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 to to overly fly too many flags. I will say that I see role playing games and uh, especially BDSM kink as extremely overlapping practices. Um, I, I think they are essentially the same skill set, uh, whether you look at it from a, a, a PC angle or a uh, game master angle, like they're doing the same thing. There is a shared fantasy between people and you are behaving in roles that like underscore that fantasy and enhance that fantasy for, you know, everybody else involved. So again, like it's such an overlapping art form. It makes total sense to me uh, that this is the the sort of thing that like people would seek out and those kink lists like they're so it feels a lot like session zero prep um, uh, that you get for uh, a lot of different stuff that you do in the role-playing world yeah absolutely and for me I you know as, as far as like a, a business proposition like if I could just do kink role play I would ditch all my other campaigns because I could just work one or two hours a day and then like be done and be like, <laughs> you know, that's it because the, the rate for it is so high because it is specialized work. And this is part of like the yeah. supply and demand thing. I have been doing this sort of play for so many years now, like over 15 years in which I have been engaging um, erotic play at some level uh, for uh, either back in the day, like MUDs, and then like play by posts and like that sort of in writing. And I think that it's definitely a specialized skill set that you have to be able to sort of keep, especially on these one on one games, you have to be able to keep the energy high, and then keep things moving in a certain direction, when you don't necessarily have that sort of problem when you're talking about a game full of players who you can lean on one player uh, in order to keep the scene going. Uh, when you're talking about dealing with someone one on one, whether it be an erotic game or just a one on one, totally different vibe. Yeah, I, you know, you're, you're spinning different kinds of plates, which is one of the reasons that I ask questions about system. Um, because there are a few different systems that I've played that engage with more intimate and erotic spaces. Uh, and I'm always fascinated to see how different designers uh, take that on in their work and what they're trying to explore uh, uh, through those themes and what mechanics they use to support that. Yeah, I just had on the uh, podcast... Uh, Alex Roberts and we talked about uh, the the conversation quickly uh, took a right turn and we went directly into like let's talk about kink and like uh, we were talking yeah <laughs> that, we were that just sounds like Alex yeah <laughs> yeah um, I was not expecting that because I I had like listened to a couple of podcasts I guess when Alex was behaving but uh, not on my p podcast she didn't so <laughs> <laughs> it's it all depends on the type of questions that you ask, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, speaking of the type of questions that one asks, see that segue? That's pretty good, right? Mm, um, love it. Hey, that's I'll podcasting. Pat my, <laughs> I'll pat myself on the back for that one. Um, let's talk about your origin story with the One Shot podcast and just a brief summary for people 
uh, before we move on to like more business oriented questions. Sure. This is a question that, as you pointed out before we started going, I've answered a thousand times. So I'm going to try and do broad strokes here. Started playing role playing games in college. Uh, after school, I wanted to become a comedian. I went through the improv theaters here in Chicago. Uh, while I was doing that, I got into just general comedy podcasting. I had an improv podcast with a buddy of mine. That podcast got picked up by a small and sadly now defunct uh, podcast network. The head of that network at the time had gotten into a show called Nerd Poker and was like, hey, I know that you do role-playing games because you've mentioned it. Could you develop a role-playing show for our network? Um, So I took a look at the landscape of role-playing podcasts at the time. All of them were like, (laughs) I want to say a good 60 to 70% of what I saw out there were just people playing through Pathfinder's Rise of the Rune Lords campaign. Um, But pretty much everything was Pathfinder and D&D. I started the show in that brief window where Pathfinder had the most market share in RPGs. This was like... A year and a half, maybe, before uh, 5e hit the scene. Yeah. Um, But, like, that was kind of it. So I decided, because I had a wonderful experience in college of having a club that played many different role-playing games and introduced different club members to different role-playing games, I was like, well, role-playing could be so much more than just Dungeons & Dragons. Uh, So what I would like to do is feature as many different games as possible. And I came up with a one-shot concept where we have a single recording of a role-playing system. We break that up into hour-long episodes and we just go through as many systems as possible. And usually we hit about two systems a month. And we've been doing that now for 10 years. 10 fucking years. Oh, my God. I'm, yeah. Oh, my God. I need to sit with that for a moment. 10 years. What was I doing 10 years? You're ago? sitting with it. I'm <laughs> sitting with it. <laughs> wow. Um, okay. Let's talk about uh, the One Shot Network and, like, you, your role as president, what is it that you actually do? And I don't mean that in an insulting way. <laughs> no, go, hey, great question. Good question. Because I cannot imagine that any of the podcasts that are in this space look the same. I, I think that role is, is kind of different for everyone because of how spread out like the field of actual play is. Like There are so many actual plays that are like, hey, We're just, we are literally just friends with microphones. And now there are also, you know, multi-million dollar endeavors. Uh, uh, So that runs a huge gambit. What I do as president of OneShot, the the primary thing that I have to do is keep uh, uh, the plates spinning that fuel our tentpole shows. OneShot and campaign uh, make orders of magnitude more money than everyone else on the network. Our our network operates more like a co-op than it does uh, a traditional media studio. Um, Mostly what we do is connect podcasters with the resources that they would need to produce their shows and produce their shows uh, with a better foundation than they would if they were doing it independently. 
Um, so OneShot, like, will cover their hosting costs for podcasts coming on our network. We have access to things like a sound effects and background music library. Uh, we have a shared Twitch channel that anybody can stream to. So, you know, most of the shows that we adopt are shows that, like, you know, I like, I, I see some potential in uh, or have a unique pitch or, you know, in some cases, I, I think are filling a very real and needed role within the RPG landscape because our core ethos over at OneShot is to make games more accessible and inclusive and do that in an entertaining way. Um, accessible meaning we want more people to find the role-playing hobby because it you know made such a wonderful difference in my life. I truly love it as an art form and I feel like I could have very easily gone my entire life and never played a role-playing game. And, you know, that thought to me is tragic. I want to do whatever it takes uh, to make it easier for people to get into role playing. And one of the ways I'm doing that is by producing shows like One Shot, where we show off the different things a role playing game can be. So people have more chances to get into it. So that first step is a little easier. Um, and, you know, like inclusive and diverse is like we kind of want it to be a safe place for people to be and be a place where, where people can see themselves doing that. And when we have the opportunity to use our resources to help facilitate that, we do. As president of the network, I have to keep one shot and campaign as successful enterprises because that's where all the money comes from. If those shows are not coming out, if those shows are not coming out in a successful way, I don't have the money to pay for uh, the you know sound archive or keep the studio running or pay the people that like edit programs and whatnot. Um, things start to fall apart and collapse. So primary things are just running podcasts. Um, however, there's a lot of behind-the-scenes business stuff that people don't see. Like, I talk about paying editors and whatnot. You know, somebody's got to be running the books for that. Somebody has to be maintaining the bank account. Uh, someone has to be projecting, you know, how like what we can accomplish and what we are likely to get back from it. Uh, we've got a wonderful production on our network and all ages actual play podcast called Skyjack's Courier's Call uh, that has to be funded through Kickstarter every year. Um, and while I don't personally run the Kickstarter, now the Courier's Call team has like gotten much better about like getting things up and running. I help promote that. I help uh, budget things out to make sure that it will be paying the performers in a fair way and be profitable for the network so that we can keep making it without hemorrhaging money on it. All of these like different little jobs are, are, are things that are related to it. Like it's, it's not that I have a regular week because some weeks I am responsible for recording audio. Some weeks I am responsible for, you know, managing huge logistical scheduling challenges. Uh, right now I am in the middle of coordinating uh, a lot of live appearances, um, uh, and especially leading up to live appearances at Gen Con this year. Uh, a lot of these live appearances aren't exactly voluntary. Um, my publisher is like sending me out on a signing tour, um, but because they are, and I am going to be in places anyway, it's like, well, now we got to make it a network event too, because it's a waste to have me travel and not engage with our, our listeners and fans to keep the interest in the show alive. 
Um, recently, I've also had to go through the huge operation of moving our host to a new host because it provides us with more opportunities as a network to allow shows to promote themselves and grow and get access to advertising revenue. Um, so the challenges and, and targets of what I have to do on a day-to-day basis change. You know, my job can be taking a lot of meetings. It can be answering a lot of emails. It can be doing a lot of, like, writing. Uh, changes all of the time. The only things that stay consistent are the podcasts have to come out. For podcasting, your biggest thing is consistency. Uh, it's something that people rely on. When I had a day job, when I, I had a commute that was like about 30 minutes each way, well, more like 40 minutes each way to and from work, I needed my weekly podcasts to get through that commute. It was a huge part of my day. Um, it weren't there. It did feel like a bummer. Uh, so I know how that feels. I got to maintain that for everybody else uh, because that's the thing that keeps the machine moving that makes all of the other cool art that we get to do. Great, great answer. Follow-on questions incoming. For for you, you started out as a hobby project, correct? When did you go full-time? Uh, so, like, I, I wouldn't even call the way that we started out a hobby project necessarily because, like, we were part of a, you know, podcast network. This is a show that was asked to be developed as part of this network. The network, uh, at the, the which was called Peaches and Hot Sauce, like, the aim was always to make entertainment products that could become profitable. Uh, when we first sat down with our improv podcast and we're, we're talking about things, we were talking about like merchandising rights and live shows, and we barely had like uh, 300 listeners. Um, so we had a lot of ambitions uh, around what we were doing. And like those ambitions were definitely around one shot when we started it, but it was certainly not a profitable enterprise uh, when we started out doing it. Um, And it did not become a thing that made money. I want to say until 20, probably the latter half of 2014 when we launched our Patreon, though it might've even been all the way at 2015. Uh, We did that. And I I started to transition into full-time around 2016. At the time, I was a travel agent um, for my day job. Uh, and the way that transition started, like once the Patreon was up and actually started earning money, I slowly uh, went back to four days a week at my day job uh, until finally it was two days a week at my day job. I had a very wonderful and permissive day job situation where I was still getting health insurance um, for working two days a week, which just incredible. Um, But it eventually reached the point where my responsibilities at one shot, like even having those two days a week was just too much. And I fully needed to create an exit for myself and figure out a way to budget my life that I could survive because the Patreon money was not enough to people uh, uh, to, to, to work it. And at the time, myself and uh, the person that I co-founded uh, One Shot with, Cat Cool, uh, there was not enough money b- between the two of us to support the two of us. So like there were my my job now is working multiple jobs and st- 
you know, started with, well, we got to invent more work and more ways to to get income because working in a creative field like this, uh, being self-employed means doing more than one job. Yeah, absolutely. That's one of the major things that I believe people find to be a shock whenever they get into any sort of performance art or anything like that. Uh, They are thinking to themselves, you know, I'll just show up I'll be really funny. Uh, that's not enough. <laughs> you gotta, you gotta show up to the table with a lot of other skills a lot of the time because these teams are so small and you just don't have the budget normally to hire a third person. You just have to have someone on the team be your editor or be the person that is doing the advertising or doing the scheduling meetings, like you said. All of that stuff, like it's busy work or it's like administrative work it's not sexy but it's got to get done if things need to happen for the podcast uh it's one of the first things that i will probably hire out for is like getting an assistant (laughs) to uh to schedule meetings and stuff like that um eventually that's that's the dream in 2023 is to like hire an assistant for me so if you're out there and you want to be i mean especially with a with a slate like yours i have to imagine uh logistics is one of the biggest parts but i i do want to point out um, explicitly, yes, um, being president of one shot does mean I'm wearing multiple hats and have to have multiple skill sets. But I do literally mean having two different jobs uh, because while I do make um, a portion of my income uh, through one shot's Patreon, it is not even the majority of my income. Most of my income these days comes from the royalties on the books that I write. And while those are synergistic jobs, they're different. You know, I could probably be writing more books if I was not producing the podcasts or producing uh, more podcasts if I were not writing books. But without both of those things in tandem, I could not make this existence work. Yeah, absolutely. I love that you've segued so beautifully into diversifying your income and we're going to talk about it. Okay, so as an entrepreneur, as a freelancer, one of the best things that you can do is diversifying your income. You can overload yourself with too many disparate things that don't interwork together. But if you can find something like James is talking about uh, that sort of cooperatively help each other or they're within the same niche to where your audience for your podcast is also going to be interested in your book or for instance, like you're developing an RPG, you know, system or game or something like that. Those are two things that work together. Let's talk about your latest book. Let's get into it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I want to, before we actually t- get into that, and I do want to do it because I need to promo these things, I, I want to mention, let, let, because we're talking about the business side of this, let, let's dig in a little bit deeper than simply saying diversify income or anything like that, because I don't think that diversify income is a helpful ethos. I think as a freelancer or a creative professional, there are really two structures of income that you need to like land in order to make a sustainable move to having your full-time job be a creative endeavor. That is reliable income, knowing, hey, I have exactly this much money coming at exactly this time, Uh, Because that helps you budget. That helps you know that your bases are covered. Passive income. Passive income is something that you can make based on work that you have already done that will continue to pay off even if it is in, you know, smaller amounts or you have to continually do things that provide passive income. But if you actively have to engage in everything that is making you money, I think you are destined to burn out 
and have things fall apart because it is too much of a rat race to be a, a freelancer and have that be your only existence. So what, what do I mean by this? If you are a writer, say, um, if your income, if you get a contract that, you know, we're paying you $5,000 for this many words, and that is a ludicrous amount of money for the RPG field. I'm just pulled it out of nowhere. If you get that contract, um, that money has like a definite value. It is just the $5,000. It's not going to be any more. That's not passive income. Is it a great payday? Should you take that job? Yes and yes. Uh, you can't have your job be, well, I'll just get $5,000 gigs all the time. You're probably working very, very hard to hit whatever deadlines or whatever word counts are getting you that 5K. You can't build a life on that. Now, if you get something that provides you royalties, that means the work that you do then is going to be paying you out for years to come. Uh, that is sadly not a very common practice in role-playing publishing and not even sad it's infuriating uh that it is but like finding those royalty structures finding things that like i did this once so i can have consistent income for a few years that is the key to making it like avery alder talks all the time about how uh monster hearts and um a quiet year are these two you know big projects that were hits and have become a passive income thing because all she needs to do to make money off of them is occasionally do some promo stuff and keep printing and distributing copies of those books that allows her to do other stuff um so if you want to be in a professional space you got to have passive income and you've got to have income that is like somehow reliable that you can plan and budget around and when we talk about the synergistic stuff that my books and podcasts provide, that's the duality. With OneShot, it's not a lot of money that I am able to take out of the OneShot network. Uh, I, I can reveal here. I get $18,000 a year from, from OneShot. I had recently said uh, that Casey Tony is the second highest paid person on OneShot, and I uh, realized that that is actually inaccurate. Casey is the third uh, because Tracy Barnett makes exactly the same amount of money as I do, and, and Tracy is our, our project manager. Um, we both get $18,000 a year. Um, it, it is not a lot of money, but it is consistent money. Uh, it is money that I can plan around and I know, okay, exactly this much is coming in every month as long as we stay above, you know, certain thresholds. Um, and the money that I get for my books is passive. Once I write a book, I'm done with that book and it provides royalties if it continues to sell well. And that allows me like slowly over, you know, I've written about five books over five years. Now the passive income that I get from that uh, is at a level where my life is starting to feel less desperate as long as I can maintain all of these various plates spinning. Wow. That was so, that was so much valuable information if you're listening to the podcast you need to like rewind that and like you need to hit the back button and like listen to that again if you're getting started as a freelancer because that is amazing amazing just impactful information that is so important for freelancers to really understand conceptually uh how it is that you're going to make it and a lot of what james is talking about if you're thinking about like as a beginning game designer or a writer um a lot of the times the tabletop structure only supports one or the other the lump sum 
for the word count, or they're going to support via royalties. And very rarely does someone do both. So you need to ask those questions up front and figure out like, is the juice worth the squeeze for what you're doing? And a lot of time, these writers, when they get their chant, they get their first start, it's like on itch, they're publishing their own stuff, they're making stuff for DM Guild or drive through RPG, wherever they might uh, make it. And then they sort of build a portfolio that way before they start getting offers or asked to actually write on projects. So when you're first starting out, less of a concern. You're just building a portfolio. You're going to say something, James? Yeah, well, no, I was, I was going to say, like, uh, freelancers, if you were wondering, like, well, if royalties aren't a common thing for RPGs, what am I doing to get that passive income? Things like distributing through drive through RPG or, or GMs or DMs Guild, like, that is, that is what we're talking about. That's something where you can make a product and keep theoretically selling that product, um, to get you passive income over time. Uh, if, if one person gets into your adventures, like on your, they buy your first adventure um, or, you know, somebody comes into your career, like after you've made 10 adventures, the adventure that you wrote, you know, three years ago can still be paying dividends today. So that is a great thing to think of and consider. But like, yeah, when, when you're taking on different projects, you have to consider the various types of reward you are receiving all the time. Am I receiving an appreciable like lump sum of money? Am I receiving a royalty structure that makes sense for me? And, you know, it is extremely mercenary when I say this. Am I getting the kind of exposure or platform that I need to enhance my other projects? Uh, you know, th there is a lot of extremely well-earned criticism on the idea of, you know, doing something for exposure. And yes, every company should be paying you uh your like a value that is equivalent to your time i have found in the tabletop field that is not necessarily thing that is always going to happen but some projects being involved in some projects can be worth the social connection that you need to get your next job that is more lucrative or can be a thing that like well since my name is associated with this people have looked into my work elsewhere and it it, it pays its own dividends um in, more things to consider in that yeah, I think it also depends on like the context of like what is it going to mean when I appear on this show because I remember uh Persephone talking about uh Persephoros for those of you who know her by her handle went on Dimension 20 and uh you know went back to streaming and um after the show like premiered and like they were part of the seven it was this big production just appearing on one show is not going to like send you a bazillion and some people obviously like get that in their mind that like if I appear in one show, then everybody's going to start following me and really enjoying my content. Really, that's maybe true for like a very small percentage, no matter what. And I only bring up Persephone because I, I believe they mentioned it in a conversation that I was observing or listening to. But um, for most people, they need to understand those conversion rates are super low. So like you're looking at 2% of an audience or less for most conversion rates. Like if you go out onto a show and you really just bang it out of the park, you're still only looking at like 2% um, of conversions of people like getting interested in what it is that you're doing. They'll look at your platform, they'll look at what you're doing, and then they'll make that decision at that point if they want to follow you or they want to buy one of your products or they get interested in you. And some of the time it's really just exposure over time. Like I 
have been exposed to James several times through different podcasts. And now I know that I like James. So I'm going to listen to James's new thing or I'm going to buy James's book. So that's a concept also that people need to like fully wrap their head around is like most advertising agencies um, had this figured out 50 years ago that you need to impress people. And that's why we use the word impressions, right? You need to impress people six to eight times in order to convince them that they need to buy a Coca-Cola. So Coca-Cola is not worried about directly selling one to one. Coca-Cola is worried about showing you Coca-Cola six to eight times throughout your lifetime so that you can make the decision to buy a Coca-Cola. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a, a great example of this is my experience uh, with the Try Guys. I did the Try Guys Try D&D. Um, and that video, like after it went up, I want to say in the first month or so, it had like 2 million views. Um, and we had a full session that they did premiering over on OneShot. Um, so, you know, like, and they put the link to that directly in their episode. Uh, and we did have more downloads for that. Um, but like of the 2 million people that saw that, you know, it was probably only around, gosh, it's, it's even really difficult to pro project. I'd have to take a look at the numbers again, but I think really like 10,000 viewers or listeners that like hadn't engaged with us before. And we did retain some of that, but it's not a massive amount of that. So even with like an opportunity like that, I full transparency, I did not receive pay for that. Would I do something like that again? Yes, absolutely. In a heartbeat, because that sort of presence and doing that sort of presence consistently helps build a platform that can provide reliable income and passive income. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of the way that people should probably shift their mindset to is what I recommend is like you look at the 1% improvement model. Like if you are looking at improving your business or increasing your traffic or doing something that's going to benefit you, even if you're only ramping it up 1% at a time every week, by the end of the year, you have increased your business by 50%, which is astronomical in business, right? If you can make a 1% improvement, and you can get out there and you can put out better advertisements and you can put out great content that's going to attract 1% more audience every single episode, you're going to, that's how you get that ball rolling and you really start to see that momentum build and snowball. Um, you don't need a huge jump. You don't need to go viral. That isn't the kind of traffic that sticks around anyway. The kind of traffic it's, that sticks around. It's good like work if you organic. can get it, but... <laughs> Yeah, it's but great it's, if you can get it. Yeah, um, not not, remember, not reliable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember, um, like my one of my tweets or whatever got like, and Twitter is like not the best uh, advertising. It's more of a networking social site. But um, I remember one of my tweets getting uh, three hundred and eighty thousand impressions. So three hundred eighty thousand people saw it. Right? Mm -hmm. Guess how many people joined my game? Like fucking two. <laughs> like fucking two people because. And, and they and they told me like directly, it's like, hey, I saw your tweet. I want to play, you know, Strahd with you. I want to play in Barovia with you. And I was like, okay, cool. And that that was it. So I do often now, because I've had a, this Twitter presence like grow over the past year, I do have people now who join my games and say, hey, I've been following you on Twitter for months and months. But it takes a long time to sort of build that up in order to build momentum for yourself in order to get that traffic. I would say a minority of the players that I get, though, are from like my social presence or appearances that I do in other places. It's really about 
making sure that your advertising or your product is really good because that's what people are there to buy or to consume. Is the product good? Was I convinced to go check this out somewhere else? Or you just tell them that they have to. <laughs> just we established at the start of the program, that's how you do it. And speaking of, and here, here I am doing my transitions as, as a podcaster, speaking of things that you have to do, Let's talk about my books. <laughs> yes. Let's talk about your books. Uh, so I do have uh, two products. Um, one is my newest book, which did not perform as well as my previous books. And I know exactly why. And I think it's a funny business-related story, so we can get into that. But I have uh, available for pre-order right now a new RPG accessory product called the Ultimate RPG Campfire Cards. Uh, I based the design for this product around uh, those conversation starting cards that you might see at like dinner parties or book clubs, or in some cases, therapists will prescribe to couples. Uh, I nice. looked at that and was like, what if we did that for RPG parties? Um, so basically, it helps your characters develop relationships and strengthen their bonds. It helps you by giving you a platform to talk about your character's backstory. It gives you reasons to look in new directions uh, for your character's backstory. And it helps like you tie different relationship knots together in a fun and accessible way. Uh, so I, it's a product that I'm really proud of. I am currently trying to convince my publisher that they need to publish more game products and products that are not just books. So if I could make this one a big success, that would be huge. It, it, it could mean real changes to the types of publishers that publish RPG content in the industry down the road. So I'm really trying to make this one a, a big hit. And pre-orders are a great way to do that. So if you want to head to bit.ly slash ultimate campfire or bit.ly slash campfire RPG, you could be a part of that exciting endeavor. But I also have my, my latest book, the, the one that came out most recently, is the Ultimate Character Backstory Guide Expanded Genre edition. Um, mm -hmm. And the publisher called it Expanded Genres Edition. What I wanted to call it in my drafting was the Ultimate Character Backstory Guide 2, because my first book, the Ultimate Character Backstory Guide, did really well for me. It was a huge successful seller. Um, and this one isn't. And I have found be it's because a lot of people think that uh, the Expanded Genres Edition is a reprint of my first book instead of a completely new and different book. That's immediately uh, what I thought when I read that yep. title and I was just like, Oh, I know exactly what the problem is. Yeah. 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 It, yeah. uh, it was painful, absolutely painful, uh, uh, to experience that, especially with, with the, the work that I put into that. But like these yeah. little things, um, are, are just such key, like strategic things. And I don't get to choose the names of my books. So, right. you know, I'm more, uh, upset with Papa Simon and Papa Schuster than I am with, uh, my editors or anything like that. It's right. just like comes together in different ways. Um, but if you want to go out and support that product, hey, that's also hugely helpful to me. Yeah, we have the links in the description uh, that we that I will get for you and we'll just post them down there. Please do check them out. Uh, I'm interested to talk about the card system. But before uh, we do, let's talk about titles and like advertisements and copywriting, because that is such a key part, just like you said, creating that feeling of this is what you're going to get based on what the product is. And because mm -hmm. there's a misalignment 
in that title, then people misunderstand what is in the product. And that is something that I hammer home so much about like these advertisements for these games that you're trying to draw people in for. You have to be very specific about what the game is going to be about in the title. Your thumbnail has to recreate this feeling, this tone, and then work with the title in order to convince people that they are more curious about what it is and they are potentially going to sign up for that game. And in this instance, like for the book title, the same thing is equally important. Like you need to convey exactly what this is and as few words as possible in order to uh, get that sale. Yeah. For the- yeah. Uh, and, and like one of the things that I learned from my publisher, which is it's wild that uh, this is a problem that I've had with them down the road, is that when they come up with titles, because my first uh, book, I can grab it off the shelf because I can't remember the title. You're a writer, not a titler. Yeah. Well, my first book they called The Ultimate RPG Character Backstory Guide Prompts and Activities to Create the Most Interesting Story for Your Character, which is an enormous mouthful. Why is the tight? Can't we come up with something more elegant? And I would also <laughs> like to not call this the ultimate product because I can already hear the weird nerds on the internet going, this is an ultimate. It doesn't cater to my very specific tastes. Um, and my editor was just like, we call it that so that they put it in the right spot of the bookstore. We want to create our titles to be as specific as possible. So whomever is working at Barnes and Noble puts it next to Dungeons and Dragons. Um, (laughs) Like it it is a weird thing, but like that's how they are thinking as a publisher. Um, That is more important to them than a lot of other things. Uh, And like all things in game design, every choice that you make that you put into a system uh, is strategic and produces a specific effect. Uh, So when you are titling something or subtitling something or describing something, you are performing a specific act of game design that will have specific results, whether you intend that or not. So I always advise have intention around uh, choices that you make and the things that you are doing. Absolutely. God. James, do you li- you don't listen to my podcast, do you? I talk about being intentional so much with people that I work with for advertising. It's so important you are intentional. Because if you go and you change stuff or you alter stuff or you adjust your uh, advertisement in a certain way and you're not being intentional and you're not being intentional with the way that you spend your time, you're not being effective. You're not being efficient. And you also don't know if what you're doing is working through luck or if it's because you've refined it and you've actually been intentional with your efforts. Yeah, I mean, I talk about that in uh, the ultimate gameplay guide, but uh, applying it to how to run role-playing games uh, and improve your skills alongside that. Intention is important. Uh, And much like uh, that old children's book, The Math Curse, you can look uh, at game design as something that is literally a part of every facet of your life already. Um, All things in life are systems. Uh, You are participating in systems, whether you recognize them or not. Uh, But if you recognize them, you can maybe take advantage of their little wheels and levers uh, to work in a way to produce the results that you would prefer to see. Um, So... all, all things can be done with intention. Uh, and if it depends, if like it's a huge factor on whether or not you put food on the table and make your rent uh, at the end of the month, then yeah, bud, uh, pull, pull a little bit of intention behind what you're doing when you make a choice. I know it is exhausting a lot of the time. I don't want to have to write 
another author bio again in my life, but I have to. <laughs> Unfortunately, yeah. That's always, I always hate writing my own bio too. I don't know. There's something Ugh. about writing bios that's just awful. It's just like, then I did this other cool stuff. Then I did this other cool stuff. And then. Yeah. Well, you have to ask yourself the question, the horrible existential question of who I am, who am I? Which inevitably re- <laughs> leads you to go, I'm no one. I have nothing. <laughs> I'm lucky to be here. That's who I am. <laughs> Anytime you read an author bio that says, like, lives with their spouse and dog in whatever city, that's them just trying to fill lines because they've realized there's nothing else for life. They've yeah. gone <laughs> through the existential crisis of I'm nothing, I'm no one. Oh, these are the most valuable things in my life. I will simply mention that as well. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. That's so fucking true. It's just like... Uh, I've got like I've got like a sense or two more that I need. I have to hit the character limit here. I have to hit the word count. But speaking of paying bills and existential crises, um, let's talk about the ultimate RPG campfire card deck because I'm very interested in this because it mm-hmm. it reminds me of how people are uh, shifting more towards intimate uh, take using tools in order to sort of engage more deeply with one another at the table uh, between our characters and sort of exploring that uh, in a way with these tools that sort of like m- creates the social lubricant, if you will. It's so interesting that you frame that as a shift because in my opinion, that's what role-playing game is. It's a system that facilitates a particular type of intimacy and story. You know, in Dungeons and Dragons, the important information is how hard do you hit something and what do you hit it with? Like, but the the system itself is facilitating that and, and turning it from, you know, the playground game where somebody decides, well, I, I have an invincible shield that blocks everything. Um, and Dungeons and Dragons, well, there is an invincible shield that blocks everything, but it's a ninth level spell, so you don't have it. Um, like, this is just introducing, like other systems to games and like frankly these systems have been appearing in games for decades uh they they haven't traditionally been dungeons and dragons uh so a lot of people like look at this and goes go wow i i can't believe that we're facilitating this for the first time it's like we we've been doing it for decades um but it is now appearing in a popular game. So I understand where, where the hesitation comes from there. Yeah, it is. Uh, it's definitely a and d thing where everybody just assumes this culture and assumes this like normative behavior when they come to the table because it is primarily um, something that was taught or handed down in like a, from orator to orator. Didn't really learn how to run the game by like reading the game master guide <laughs> like you. I mean, used famously, to. the first edition of Dungeons and Dragons does not mention at all does not teach you how to actually play the game so for this card deck i'm very curious about it so 50 unique and interesting question cards to spark discussion inspiration and collaboration 150 150 oh okay they did it wrong on the website they only have 50 listed on the website Ooh, damn so the description is wrong there is it was done without attention i'm gonna send you the link right now it's um so it's it's labeled correctly in the subtitle but not the about the book the about the book uh. is incorrect yeah yeah okay so that being said 150 so as a game master as a professional game master why would you recommend what's your pitch for me to pick this up or anyone who is a professional game master um so like a few different things uh that this product can 
fill. First is, let's say you've got a session where not everybody is showing up to the table. Now, a lot of people in that circumstance, and I would say, don't cancel. It is so hard to keep a game going, and you really just need two missed sessions for a game to completely fall apart. Um, but if everybody's showing up anyway, that like brings them the momentum they need. This is something that can fill narrative space in your game where play people are still playing their characters, learning things about the game world, exploring and role-playing. Uh, but doing it in a really contained and controllable format that feels easy to pick up. So if not everybody shows up to the session, you can be like, hey, let's just bust out campfire cards for a little bit. Our characters will get closer with each other. We'll have an opportunity to reveal, you know, more secrets and whatnot about our backstories uh, and explore things that we have not yet explored in our game world and characters. Um, so it makes that sort of role-playing session, very easy and the sort of thing where you don't need to prepare. You can simply pick up a deck of cards and, you know, deal some out and you're good to go. The other thing I would say is every role-playing experience that I have had, it felt like all the players were invested in all of the characters and all of the characters really had a strong reason to be together and be working together. All of those experiences were more fun than just going off of the base assumptions of how D&D is supposed to work. Well, we're supposed to be interested in taking out the big bad evil guy. We're supposed to be interested in acquiring more power and treasure. Um, or even I have this very specific vision for my character story and I would like to pursue it. And that's why I come to the table every week. If you have players who are invested in each other's stories and want to further each other's stories or get tangled up in each other's stories, um, it gets easier and more fun as a player and a game master to experience the kind of things that you most want to see and experience in the game. And this product is designed to entangle characters in that way, designed to spark interest, curiosity, and excitement about the other characters at the table. Uh, but it's designed to do that in a way that is easy, you don't have to think about, and is so... Like, I am just taking advantage of game mechanics, extant game mechanics uh, that are out there that people use to increase intimacy in their real lives and just applying that to RPGs uh, because, like, it's another little lever that you as a game master or even as a player uh, can pull to add something to your game. Um, I based the design of the product not just on, like, those cards, but also on uh, games like For the Queen that are specifically driven by questions. And, in fact, this product specifically, uh, Alex Roberts was brought in as a consultant for these questions. So I know they're really tight. I know they're really well thought through. Um, and I know they do a good job at driving at these specific points and providing people the platforms they need to build. And, again, it's all let's lay back. Let's let the cards do most of the work. They're going to ask the questions and the answers to us will be obvious and the follow-up questions will flow. That's why yeah. you want to pick it up because it's great and fun. I I have pre-ordered it while you were talking about it. I was just like, okay, you got me in like the first like three sentences. So <laughs> <laughs> I think it's going to be a great tool. I'm looking forward to it. It looks like it uh, ships in August of this year. So. It's August. August of this year. So might be out. I, I think it's after gen con but okay it'll be yeah. around it'll be around yeah um are you gonna bring uh a a set with you to gen con i 
hope to. Um, it yeah. all depends on the printing and shipping schedule uh, over at Papa Simon and Papa Schuster's workshop on the South Pole. You know, yeah. they've got to hand bind <laughs> all of these books and cards and Did you say ship they them work out. at the South Pole? Like they're yeah, elders, like <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, they work for Atnis, the anti Santa, who's oh. got a workshop <laughs> full of surly ogres. Um, but yeah, the, the, like they, it depends on how quickly they can print the product and and get it shipped out. Uh, sometimes I receive my copies of something after it is already oh, yeah. on shelves elsewhere. <laughs> gotcha. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I I will hopefully have uh, copies of it at Gen Con. Yeah, I would love to see it. I will be at Gen Con tentatively. Uh, I am one of Cobalt Press's uh, GMs that's going to be playtesting Black Flag. So if mm-hmm. you wanted to play Black Flag, uh, Cobalt Press is running those uh, playtesting games there. I will be one of the GMs um, along with a few of my friends. And... Um, yeah, I don't know what else I'm really doing at Gen Con. I don't really have any. Because last time I went, I was a panelist, and then I ran some games for Cobalt Press. But um, I don't work for Cobalt Press. I just have been, like, sort of involved in, like, their shows and stuff. So not an employee, just a very thankful person to have received the patronage from the Cobalt Um in my time, they're wonderful to work with. I love Cobalt Press. So, um, yeah, I hope to see you there, actually, if uh, we're both going to be there. That'd be great. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I will be there uh, doing events for my books, which we are touring around this RPG-themed game show with prizes for the audience. I'm working with uh, oh. Jeff and John from System Mastery and the Adams Media Dungeon Meister brand. Um, so you can check that out and probably get some free books. Uh, I'll also be doing live shows for Campaign Skyjacks, um, our big flagship podcast that's about queer pirates in a setting that's inspired by the music of the Decemberists. Really, really weird pitch for a show there, but I promise it's very good. We're going to be doing those live shows at Gen Con. And I am also going to be doing some sort of work with the folks from Together Studios. uh, That is Keith Baker, uh, uh, like games that that, uh, he he does with his wife, Jen. Um, uh, They'll have – actually, I don't know what they'll have yet. They're making a very compelling pitch to Gen Con right now that I believe Gen Con should accept, but uh, we won't know. No more details until after Thursday. So, yeah, uh, gotcha. we'll see. But I should be doing some stuff with them. Gotcha. Keith Baker, Eberron Keith Baker, right? Yes. Uh, Keith oh, Baker okay. did Eberron, Phoenix Dawn Command, Gloom, uh, and a little game called Illimat, which is fantastic. Wonderful. Okay. Um, I think that's a good place for us. To, it. What else would you like to talk about? Because, like, I feel like there's so much information in this podcast. The time has really flown by. Do you have anything else that you'd like to bring up or mention? I don't know. Did you do listener questions? We could we could. Oh, hit yeah. some of those. I forget about my listeners. Okay, yeah, we do have listener questions. Thank you for reminding me because I definitely uh, started a thread just for you. Okay, so, hmm, I haven't even read these yet. Let me make sure that these are appropriate. <laughs> One second. Trying to I'm, imagine what would be inappropriate. Uh, Why okay. is the link to your OnlyFans broken? Well, <laughs> uh, this question. These questions are from Nate. Um, how much did your comedy improv background shape your approach to role playing? I, I would say tremendously. Um, improv and role playing are also very closely related arts. So if we're keeping score of arts that I consider essentially exactly the same as role-playing games. It is improv and BDSM. Um, 
But for uh, role-playing games, I consider them to be essentially very robust improv forms. Uh, they provide rules that make it easier to do scene work. Um, that, that's it. Uh, if you follow them, I think they're pretty complex and fascinating scenes that you do. Um, but if you are a good improviser, if you've worked through an improv theater uh, to have skills, you get trained up in thinking about what you're doing in a particular way that I think leads to being a more pleasing product to observe. Um, you know, when I went through Second City and IO, they were constantly drilling into our heads like the reason that we're developing these skills that we're, we're working on building on each other's ideas is it creates a interesting experience for an audience to observe. Like it is a cool artistic product and expression that, that you are doing. And role-playing games don't often frame themselves that way. And so I think they don't always produce like the actual play experience. A lot of people uh, on Twitter will gripe about something like the, the, the Matt Mercer effect or whatever. Like some people are now calling it the Brennan Mulligan effect of like, oh, I wish the things that I saw in actual play, like that's not going to be my experience at the table. It's like, well, it's how you are looking at what you are doing, what, what your goals are. And, you know, if your goal is not to, as a character, make an interesting choice that might lead to, you know, compelling follow-ups and moments that you can build on, yeah, you're not doing it because you're playing with an explicitly different goal. Um, and the goal that Dungeons & Dragons kind of systemically wants you to pursue is spend as few resources as possible to acquire as many resources as possible. Um, that is probably not actually a great ethos for entertainment uh, if, you, if it's for an external audience. But for an individual audience observing your own behaviors and actions, well, yeah, I spent very few of my daily resources to capture all of this treasure and XP. I'm a strategic genius. Um so it's all, it frames how I think about what I do at a role-playing table, which I think makes it more fun to observe. Uh, Absolutely. Wonderful answer. That was the most in-depth answer that I've ever heard for <laughs> that question. Okay. Because um, I've heard, I hear that question a lot, especially uh, improv actors like yourself do get asked that question quite a bit. So congratulations on the best answer I've ever heard. Suck it, Brendan Lee Mulligan. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, we we hit we hit one, but it was a second. Yeah, gotcha. gotcha. <laughs> no, I'm not going to cut it out. I'm not going to cut oh, it okay, out. Okay, okay. I'll, I'll <laughs> encourage a friendly rivalry. I'm I'm, I'm talking right. to Brennan tomorrow. So are you really? Okay. Yeah. Let him know that you've been shit shit talk. Let let him know that you shit talked him on this podcast, and he has to come I'll, on this podcast. To well, shit yeah, talk he'll to have you. to come on th this podcast and give a more eloquent answer to the same question. <laughs> if we can sort of spiral up. And he can, like, tag the next person <laughs> in the change. Maybe Abria will come in. Although I yeah. don't know if Abria has an improv background. Actually, I, I don't know everybody's performance backgrounds. Either way, you should just get a cavalcade of guests that progressively give more in-depth yeah. and thoughtful answers to the same questions. And eventually, there's just, like, a split in the TTRPG community where it's, like, where it's like two gangs. Or it's, like, gangs of New York where everybody has these different sects that are fighting. And we're all singing and dancing. Yeah, absolutely. That's All right, West next Side Story, baby. <laughs> um, next question. Uh, uh, what TTRPG system best emulates living in Chicago? I don't know. Some slice of life system. It's just, <laughs> it's just, a, it's just another city. Okay. 
I mean, is there is there a tabletop system where you eat good food at the same time? <laughs> that one. That's the one. You know, I'm very curious. Actually, let me know in the comments if there is one that I'm just not aware of, but I've never seen. There one are that definitely meal based uh, tabletops. There's also, I mean, shout out to Jeff Stormer, uh, the Olive Garden LARP. Um, when you hear your family, <laughs> that one's mostly built Starring around Vin Diesel breadsticks. Um, the 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 unlimited breadsticks, but like you still. You know, it's eating is a part of it. And I would be shocked if there is not a Gian Shim game uh, that is oh. around eating a meal and uses the mechanics of eating the meal somehow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gian Shim would definitely create a game about that. Hold on, let me glance real quick um, while I ask you this next question. What are three systems you'd recommend to people who have only played D&D and why, which is a perfect question in this post-OGL environment that we're in? Yeah, this so this is a, a tough one, mainly because there are different things that people like about different D, uh, about, about D&D, and different things that might motivate you to try something else. Uh, so I'll say if you like Dungeons & Dragons um, for what Dungeons & Dragons is, uh, if you're into combat, if you're into power fantasies and character advancement and strategic choices that you make in the moment-to-moment -moment play, a game that I'll recommend for you is Phoenix Dawn Command, designed by Eberron's own Keith Baker. Uh, Phoenix Dawn Command is a card-based tabletop role-playing system uh, where you play mythical figures called phoenixes who can die and be reborn. And the way the system handles character advancement is you have to die to be reborn as a more powerful version of your character. Wow. Phoenix is really built around the idea of sacrifice plays. Like you have so many resources that you're playing, but like it may be really important for you to find the right time in your story to die and come back so that you can like make the mission successful. On top of that, it is a really fun and cinematic game. It provides a lot of like the D&D feelings of like, oh, combat is so important and compelling and there's real risk reward. But because Phoenixes can only die and return seven times, like death does still have an air of permanence around it. But you can only become the most powerful version of yourself if you make the choice to die uh, at different times. So really fascinating game. Um, I, I think like out of the box, it is so great um, and so cool. So if you are a mechanics head, um, definitely Phoenix Dawn Command is one that I will recommend. I don't know if, if it'll still be on sale, but it's on sale right now for almost like 40% off. On I, uh, it, There are dollars off because this game did not receive the love uh, that it deserved. Um, I, I, I wish it was more popular because it is beautiful. Uh, there, There's maybe... I, I can't remember. I played uh, this game when it was still in development. Division might be part of how armor works, and that might be working against the system a little bit. Everything else about that system was like really mechanically. It sings. If you read the book, it will. I, I think it's a good experience, and you should you should play it. Um, if you are looking for something that is an experience unlike 
Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, D&D, like I said, you want to expend as few resources as possible to get as many resources as possible in the base setup of whatever the game is. Obviously, people take it off in many different directions. I am going to recommend, it's it's actually, this is a twofer, uh, because you can go either way on this. They're both great games. Uh, Ten Candles and Dread. These are both horror role-playing games. Uh, Dread is a horror RPG that uses a Jenga tower. Every time you do something that is risky or has a chance of failure, you draw a brick from the tower and put it on top. And if the tower falls over, your character dies. Every decision that you make in this game could be monumentally important, could result in the death of your character. Uh, There is almost no way to predict whether you will succeed or fail at something. And the stories that you play, like death is almost an inevitable possibility, especially if you play the game long enough. Um, Because of that idea of playing, like your goals of this game are different than your goals in D&D. Um, And I I think that challenges it in an interesting way. Uh, Similarly, Ten Candles, which is an RPG that is played using tea light candles uh, that slowly get extinguished as you play. It is a tragic horror role-playing game where everyone and every character at the table, every character at the table, not everyone at the table, uh, is guaranteed to die. Hopefully not everyone. Uh, Actually, hopefully no one at the table actually dies during a game of Ten Candles. That would be very sad and tragic. But... Uh, the in the game itself, all those characters are going to die. You can't make the decision that saves everyone. You can't make the decision that like preserves as many resources as possible. Uh, you are playing at different goals. Um, I think that is a great way to stretch your internal RPG muscle. Finally, uh, a, a game that I will suggest. I'm going to go with Alex Roberts for the Queen. The reason for this, I think this game is a great bridge between being a player and being a GM. Um, the way for the queen works because you are just answering questions. There is a deck of cards in the center of the table. I mean, if you interviewed Alex, I imagine the audience has a chance of knowing how for the queen works, but like questions will pop up, uh, about you and your relationship to a queen. Um, and, As you answer those questions, your relationship and personality and the queen's personality become more clear as the game goes on. And it is all leading up to a final question uh, the game is you know, trying to make you grapple with and chew over. However, during that play, you have total creative freedom. You can say and do anything. Getting the first card of the game, I could decide that the queen is uh, a a queen of a galactic empire, uh, you know, an insect queen. Uh, I could decide that the queen is a prom queen. There are all kinds of wild decisions that you can make. And you have the freedom to do it, and everybody builds on the ideas and decisions that were already made, which is kind of a thing that game masters have to do. And if you have only ever played before, this is a great way to, you know, dip a toe into the waters of what does total creative freedom look like? And what happens to my play when a big part of my only responsibilities are simply to support the ideas uh, that have come forward from everybody else playing? Um, it's also, there are very few rules outside of that. Uh, it's a type of story game that, uh, will lead you in many other directions. 
and I should re- like mention like play something powered by the apocalypse, play something uh, forged in the dark, because if you play one of those games, you will suddenly know a dozen different games um, because there are so many different powered by the apocalypse systems and so many different forged in the dark systems. Yeah, absolutely. And this is this podcast is now just in Alex Roberts Stan account. Uh, I love talking to Alex and talking about what Alex is doing. So. Uh, one of the reasons why I was so elated that Alex agreed to come on board the uh, my team that I'm building for How to GM Romance Guidebook that we'll be putting out this year. Um, it's my next Kickstarter project, not this one, but the, my next one um, <laughs> later this year. So I'm very excited to have Alex Roberts on the team and making us some mini games uh, that she would like to make a, a, us like relationship mini games and like cute date mini games and stuff like that to put in there. That being said. Um, James, I have, I have no problem with my interview turning into an Alex Roberts Stan <laughs> interview. Uh, she's the most, she designed the best role-playing game that I have ever seen. Uh, uh, Starcrossed is the best designed RPG out there is the only RPG where every single rule makes the experience of the game better. I, I, again, have a very long professional career where all I am doing is reading and playing games. No one's done it better. Literally no one. Suck it, entire staff of D&D. I I was trying to think of, like, who the lead designer on 6th edition is, and I I couldn't. I, I will say, at the beginning of this, in my head got put the idea that it might I might possibly start a feud or aggressively call out like someone else, another professional within the space. Now all I want to do is do it. I just <laughs> Yeah, you've been given enough rope to hang yourself, yeah. Oh, you know, and just to just to clear the air, I I just tell my guests that if they want anything cut, I'll cut it because I don't want to make anybody uncomfortable or like you say something you regret. But James came in here and is like ready to fight. Like, well, you gave me choices. What? I mean, this is the thing. And this perfectly exemplifies how improv is a poison that can ruin your brain. <laughs> you present a choice. Well, you could make a choice to just say safe things and only do safe and comfortable things. And we'll cut around that. Or you can make the interesting choice of like starting weird fights for no reason. It's like, well, I have to do that. That's the cool, entertaining one that everyone wants to see. Yeah. Well, no matter who you are on the Wizards of the Coast team, James will fight you. You just, well, I mean, uh, all, all, all I want to say, the only thing I want to say is that Alex Roberts is better than you. Oh, okay. And anything that you've achieved. Okay. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, it's a reality yeah. I have to live with, too. And it I becomes less of a hard. struggle when you accept it. Yeah. <laughs> We're gonna, I'm going to stop it there. <laughs> hi thanks for listening if you want to support me you can find me on patreon at patreon.com slash is friday or you can find some of the work that i'm doing at vineyardrpg.com if you want to pre-order the book that we made 